Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, so I'm glad you're here. I just got back from Scotland, and there was a bottle of whiskey, fine whiskey, at the duty-free shop in the Heathrow Airport. Now, this was behind glass, like, you know, right right in the center of the store, and it was really a very special bottle. I don't know if you know anything about whiskey. I just went on on this distillery tour, so I, I learned all these things, and if, if the color is darker, that's usually a sign of aging, but it might be a sign of caramel coloring also, so you have to be careful. But anyway, the really authentic old stuff gets darker in color. And this bottle, you ready, was selling for 39,000 British pounds, 39,000 pounds, this one bottle of whiskey. In case you're wondering, that's 49,000 US dollars in change. I asked, there were some other expensive bottles, that was the most expensive, but I asked the, the person working at the store, did, you know, have you, have you sold any of these? You know, I was just curious. And he looked at me with this big smile on his face and he says, we're selling it today. And there was like a little twinkle in his eye when he said, we're selling one today that made me understand that his meaning was that we haven't sold any, (laughs) but today we're going to sell one. And I thought, wow, this is, this is like, this is the way to think about Mashiach. You know, he didn't come yesterday. He didn't come the day before, maybe the year or the decade or the millennium before, whatever. But today, we're going to sell it today. Today he can come. And that's the thing. And it's the thing that I'm always trying to share with people. Um, Sometimes people make predictions. He's going to come this day. And then when he doesn't come, people are disappointed. And if they try to live with the You know, that's one of the questions that we're going to be asked at the end of our lifetime. The Gemara says this in Mesecta Shabbos, we're asked six questions, one according to each of the orders of the Mishnah. And one of the questions that we're going to be asked is, did you await Mashiach? And so a lot of people try to keep that mitzvah because, you know, who who doesn't want to say yes to those or give proper answers to those six questions, the final exam of a lifetime, right? At the the end of 120. So, So we want to get that one right too. But a lot of people think that the way to await Mashiach is to be sure that he's coming today. And after a while of living with that, it's it, it can become unsustainable. People get just too burnt out. Well, he, he didn't come again. So I think that the answer to this is just a very slight adjustment in understanding and attitude. And instead of saying he's coming today, he can come today. He can come today. I can sell that bottle today because God can do anything and any time in that. Nothing is difficult for God. And given that, the fact is that he can come at any single moment. So if he can come at absolutely any single moment, of course I'm awaiting him because any moment he can arrive. Do you hear the difference between those two approaches? It's not just he's coming today, it was predicted and then he doesn't come, and now I'm disappointed. And how many how many days can I do that to my neshama to, right? My soul can only take so much. As opposed to, nothing is hard for God. He can come at any single moment. He's coming anyway. We're going to sell it today. <laughs> 
And you know something? When he said to me, today it's going to get bought, he had a big smile on his face. That shows you how sustainable that attitude is. Who knows how long he's been working there? Who, long, who knows how long it hasn't been sold? But with that attitude that today we're going to sell it, he had a big smile on his face. So that's the first thing that I want to share with you from that trip is just, you know, God, God knows what he's doing. And God is leading us. And in the proper time, in the right time, things are going to happen. And if it hasn't happened yet, it's not because it's, it's too hard for God. Okay, now we learned about the Kahanim and special laws of purity, of holiness, increased Kedusha that are applied to the Kahanim. Remember, we have three different breakdowns of the Jewish people, Kohen, Levi, Yisrael. And the Magali Amukha says something so beautiful. He says, if you take the first letter of those three categories of Jews, Kohen, Levi, Yisrael, it spells the word Kli, which means vessel which means that when we're united as one people, we form a vessel that can hold the highest, highest, highest light. Now, there's special extra laws that apply to the Kohen. He can't marry a divorcee. He can't marry a widow. He can't marry a convert. The Kohen Gadol can't marry someone who's not a virgin, although a regular Kohen could, as long as she didn't have relations with someone who was not permissible to her. Um, and all these laws are spelled out in the Rambam. The Torah points out that a Kohen can't have contact with the dead. And this is sort of a, a mysterious thing. A Kohen can't walk into a cemetery. If, if you look, it's usually in Hebrew, but there are signs posted around cemeteries that a Kohen can only walk this far, till this day, till this day. It was even an issue in terms of flying on airplanes like to Israel, whether there would be dead bodies being shipped to Israel to be buried, whether a Kohen could get on that flight. And so there, till this day, this aspect, even though we don't have a holy temple anymore, a Beis HaMikdash, these laws are kept by the Kahanim till this day. And so the question is, what, is the issue of a Kohen who, remember, has to be this extra exemplar of purity. What is the connection between him and a dead body? Or what is the dissonance exactly? So I'd like to explain it like this. And there are all sorts of other laws that apply to Kahanim. And one by one, they can all be explained by this general rule that I'm going to set forward to you. Okay? Now, the Kahanim were children of Levi. They were members of the tribe of Levi. And when it talks about the Levium, later on in Sefer Bamidbar, in the book of Numbers, there are several chapters of the Torah just almost completely devoted to discussing the Levium and the Kahanim together. Remember, they were both members of the same tribe, the tribe of Levi. The Torah refers to them over and over again as Halavim, 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 Halavim. That means the Levis, okay? The Torah uses that phrase so often that at a certain point I was like, why do they keep on using that phrase? There must be something more to it. 
So I took the gematria, the numerical equivalent of that word, halavim, which means the levies, and amazingly, it adds up to 91. The number 91 is a very, very significant number in Torah thought because it's a combination of two divine names, the numerical value of two divine names, the Yudke Vavke, God's highest, holiest name, and then another name spelled Aleph Dalad Nunin Yud, pronounced Adonai. So that number 91 is like one of these super encompassing ideas that God rules over the totality of existence, heaven, earth, within borders, beyond borders, absolutely everything. So now with that in mind, isn't it interesting that the Kahanim equal 91, right? Because they're referred to as Halavim, which is 91. What's the connection? What what does that mean? Does that mean that Levium are God? No, no, no. That's not what it means. It means that the Levium, both the Kahanim and the Levium, who both worked in the Beis HaMikdash, the Beis HaMikdash was that intermediary place uniting heaven and earth, right? If someone made a mistake below, they would bring an offering, and that would reconcile heaven and earth again. It would keep the divine flowing from above to below again, or from below to above. So in other words, the idea of the kahanam is really to integrate heaven and earth and to make them one together, which is the mission of the Jewish people, really to unite heaven and earth, to bring heaven down to earth, or perhaps more precisely said, to bring earth up to heaven. All right. Now let's get back to these restrictive laws of the Kahanim, understanding now that the essence of the Kohen is to create integration. Well, what is a dead body? A dead body is a body whose soul who's left it. In other words, the dead body is the exemplar the model of disconnection, of disintegration. And so, so to speak, it's like kryptonite to the Kohen, who's all about integration. And when you have that conceptual model in mind, it makes all the other prohibitions, all the people that he can't marry, for instance, all exhibit some instance of deintegration in their lives, as tragic as it may have been, but the coin is about integration, and therefore he has to stay far away from disintegration. Isn't that interesting? Okay, now I want to tell you something else. We just had the holiday of Pesach Sheni, and the Torah came to me that It was very exciting to me, so I want to share it with you. Because as you know, Pesach Sheni is the capital of second chances. And as Reb Shlomo put it, who among us doesn't need a second chance? So let's begin by talking about the creation of human beings, because you're really going to see how Pesach Sheni really is a description of the soul of a human being. But uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. 
Let's start with God blowing the Nishmas Chaim into Adam Harishon, the breath of life into the first creation, right? Adam in the Garden of Eden. So God blows the soul of life into him. Okay, very good. Now, when we blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, I saw this Fasemis says that we're reenacting God blowing that nishmas chayim, that soul of life into us. The blowing of the shofar, when that happens, all of us become recreated anew. We get a brand new soul, and that's on Rosh Hashanah. So the shofar is that moment where we get the breath of life blown into us again. Now I want to look at the letters of the word shofar. Well, it has a pay and a shin in it. And I want to say that that stands for Pesach Sheni. And what about the remaining two letters of shofar? That's a vav and a taf. Well, ima kolel, you can always add the number one to any word, which means you can add the letter aleph to any word. So if you add if the aleph to vav and taf, that spells or. So now let's reread the word shofar as the or, the light of Pesach Sheni, the light of second chances. The shofar, blowing the shofar is the light of second chances. Okay, so now let's go back to the beginning, which is compared to a shofar blast when God blew the soul into man. So what did God blow into man? What is a description of the soul of a human being? The light of second chances. And it's not just the human being that gets a second chance because the world is created every single moment anew. God is constantly creating and recreating the world. In fact, in the morning prayers, we say these words right after Baruch Hu, Uvtuvo mechadish b'choyom tamid ma'asevereishis. And in his goodness, renews daily, perpetually, the work of creation. Do you want to hear something interesting? The next page, we say the same thing over again. In the paragraph that starts with Le'el Bruch Nimositenu, we say, Uvetuvo b'choyom tamid ma'asevereishis. Right? Talking about how God, in his goodness, renews daily, perpetually the work of creation. Now, why would you repeat that same line just a few lines apart? A, to show you how absolutely important it is, essential it is, for the worldview of a Jew to understand that the world is constantly being created and recreated anew. And two, to remind you that since the last time you read it, a few seconds ago, the world has already been recreated anew. So, so anyway, it's not just the human being that gets a second chance. The world itself gets a second chance. And not only that, if you made a mistake, well, guess what? You made a mistake in a world that no longer exists. That world you made the mistake in isn't here anymore. You're in a new world. So keep moving and don't give up. The fact that God equipped us as part of our essence, as part of the nature of our soul, 
with the ability to begin again and begin again and begin again and begin again. Not just during this lifetime, but we believe in reincarnation, which means even after this lifetime, our soul gets a second chance if it needs it, right? Hopefully it doesn't need it. Hopefully we fix everything we need to in this lifetime. You know, I'll tell you something deep. It came to me tonight. There's a classic Torah. The Kutzka Rebbe says it, and Rebbe Nachman says it as well. I learned fairly recently that the Kutzka Rebbe was a, a big student of the Sfarim of Rebbe Nachman, had the highest regard for Rebbe Nachman of Breslov. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So it could even be that the, that the Kutzka Rebbe learned this from Rebbe Nachman. I don't know. But after a person's lifetime, and this applies to all of us, more likely than not, more likely than not, he was talking to his students who were on the highest level. The Kutzka Rebbe was addressing his students. So if he felt that this was true for his students, it's most likely true for all of us. He says, after 120, you're going to be given two choices, either Gehenim or reincarnation. So Gehenim, that's translated as hell, but it's not really hell. It's this, this cleansing process on the way to heaven. And so, but it must look terrifying. And you know what's the proof that it must look absolutely terrifying? that everyone chooses reincarnation, it seems. So the Kutzka Rebbe advised, when you're given that choice between Gehenim and reincarnation, choose Gehenim. Because you don't know. You know, reincarnation is a very risky, dicey process. You don't know what you're going to be able to hold on to this next time around, or whether or not you'll be successful. It's a very, very risky proposition. And all of us chose that because we're all hearing this right now. We all chose reincarnation. So we have to be very, very careful with this lifetime. Certainly make sure that we don't go backwards. But to make sure that we sort of like live up to the high hopes that we ourselves had for ourselves. That we'd be able to finally fix whatever we needed. That whatever was left for fixing, that we'd be able to do it. Now, I want to say the following. This is now the new thought. By the way, so let me just add one more thing. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says something amazing. He says that, basically, I'm putting it in my own words, but that when, when the soul is given the choice, the idea of Gehenna, or the appearance of Gehenna, I don't know what the soul is shown exactly, is so terrifying that a person has to start thinking during this lifetime, building up the muscles, so to speak, building up the courage, so to speak, that they'll be able to choose Gehenna and that the soul won't be frightened because we've prepared for this moment in advance. And the idea is that, you know, if you do tshuva in this world, if you fix your soul in this world, whatever fixing that needs to take place in Gehenna should be slight. It shouldn't be a big fixing. So in other words, ideally, if we're doing this world properly, we, do, we, we really don't have to be that afraid. And it says that the tzaddikim, the righteous ones, zip through Gehenim. They go right through. It's not a lengthy process at all. It just looks very scary. Okay. Now I want to add a new thought. And like I said, this came to me tonight. So we see, you know, great tzaddikim in this world over history, 
People like the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So what's the Lubavitcher Rebbe doing in this world? Like, seemingly, didn't he fix all he needed to fix during his last lifetime? And I thought to myself, you know what? When someone, when a great Sadik chooses reincarnation, they are choosing Gehenna. Meaning to say that even though they could basically go right to Shemayim, they could zip right through Gehenna and go straight to Shemayim, their choosing reincarnation is their way of not abandoning all the souls of this world because they know that we need their help. The highest tzaddikim come back. That's their choosing Gehenna, even though they could risk losing things during this lifetime. That's why it's Gehenna for them, because they could risk going backwards. But they do that for us, because we need these exalted role models in this world to see through all the darkness of this world. So i just tell you one more thing. We're going a little shorter this week. I just got back from the airport and it's already nighttime, but I didn't want to not send out a talk. So we're counting the Omer. And it's amazing. We're going from Pesach Sheni, as we discussed, to Lagba Omer, Monday night. It's going to be awesome. And every night we're counting the Omer. And it says that we have to count seven complete weeks. And he uses this word, seven pure weeks. Now, it could have said something else. It could have said, count seven whole weeks. Right? Shlemus, right? That's a, that's a word that's often used. Why, why seven complete weeks? with the word tamimuskai. Tamima means pure. Tamimos. Because it's not about the number of weeks. It says seven pure weeks. Because the idea is that during this time when we're working on our characters, we're making ourselves pure. That's the idea. We're the purity of that word. So that after seven weeks, that tamimus kite, that seven complete weeks, should apply to the purity of our souls after those seven weeks. So that we can be this beautiful, pure vessel to accept the highest light of the Torah. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.